how do I hold the all the loves that I have, the love I have of total black liberation and the love I have of our mom? How do I hold those? And that's that feels like, oh, that's my responsibility as a black mixed race woman to hold. And it's ours as a multiracial family to hold. science fiction writer, a theologian, a mother of dragons, and a healing justice facilitator for social movements living in Minneapolis. And I'm Adrian Marie Brown, author of Emergent Strategy, Pleasure Activism, co-editor of Octavius Brood, and facilitator, Auntie Extraordinaire, and I pay rent in Detroit. <laughs> <laughs> And this is How to Survive the End of the World. Our podcast about right now, today. No, our podcast about learning from apocalypse <laughs> <laughs> with grace, rigor, and curiosity. Our apocalypse, our apocalypse right now and our podcast about it. <laughs> yes, exactly. It's all happening. Um, and today we wanted to spend a little bit of time on bringing ourselves in. Um, really talking about us as black, biracial, black, mixed race people in the work mm-hmm. and as co-host of this. And, um, you know, I was interested in this conversation and at least doing a, a level of unveiling here because I feel like there's this pattern in movement, in culture, all over the place of Rachel and Ra- <laughs> Rachel Dolezal's. <laughs> Okay, the word racial <laughs> and the word Rachel are different, but there's this collapse. Racial dollazals. <laughs> there's this pattern of racial dollazals. Um, but I'm sure that that's at the heart of some of this, right? Is that there's this pattern of people being irresponsible about race and about how they're showing up in a, a very complex conversation about it and Mm -hmm. there's a pattern of racial ambiguity and people benefiting from that racial ambiguity cultural ambiguity cultural Mm -hmm. appropriation all these different things that are happening and for me i think so much of what's important is to be exactly who the fuck you are like whoever that is and i feel like race is one of those places and blackness is one of those places where it's so important to to really just sit with, this is the black experience that I have. This is the black experience that we have. And there's no Mm -hmm. need to be performing something or um, checking off some list of like, here's how blackness needs to be done or anything else. I think it's really important that we each be telling the honest story of our black experiences. And I think the more of those that get told, um, I think the harder it is then for people to come in with something that's actually not black experience and take up any space with it. And I also think the more we can actually embrace the different kinds of pain and trauma and brilliance and incredible experience of, you know, all that blackness has actually come to hold in this time. So just that, you know, I I wanted to spend a little time with each of us getting to share, because even one of the things that's so interesting to me is that you and I come from the same family, but we have different experiences of how race has played out in our lives, different experiences of how it shaped our worlds. 
and it feels important to me to just be like yeah. even at that level yeah yeah I mean I think that I think it is really it, it's interesting because we've had it we've had it in mind to have this conversation for a couple of years now it's you know just inside view for listeners that we'd have this like uh, we have a a document that we call our treasure trust where we have our sort of running list of all the things that we know we want to talk about and this one has been in there for a while and I think it (laughs) felt it it felt especially important um given some of what's happening right now to actually go there and 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 I think that there is you know in, in my work one of the things that um I'm always having to um always having to sort of uh, do with especially inside of um supporting social movement organizations is helping people understand that blackness is not a monolith exactly. and the black experience is not a monolithic homogenous experience right um and in f- and you know and in fact like in reality i think as almost any black person can tell you it's like the black experience is as heterogeneous as as each of us who are a part of the black experience. Like it's very, um, it's heterogeneous. so dynamic and so <laughs> heterogeneous. What's and, that? Uh, <laughs> what does that mean? Does that mean <laughs> not uh, diverse? Diverse, oh, you know, you. <laughs> like not not the same, not the same, not the okay. same. Homogeneous being the same, heterogeneous meaning not the same. Teach me. And it's. Right. And not not hetero in that. Uh, you know, I hear hetero and all my but... flags go up like, hell no. And I'm like, wait, right. maybe you mean something <laughs> good. <laughs> no. uh, it's always important to remember that these words have their own definitions outside exactly. of um, the ways that they get pulled into um, heterarchy, you know, like, ca- categor- yes. ca- <laughs> categorizing ourselves. But um, but yeah, just that like like and I think I can just start from my own experience that yes. like, you know, I I feel like <laughs> I, I feel like I'm, I'm probably not alone in this that like that like whiteness taught me that I was black. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. like I think I was definitely, you know, and, and I, I ID as a mixed race black woman. Mm-hmm. And it has, it was many years. I, I had many years where I didn't ID as black at all. Um, and I had many years where, you know, I very, very explicitly and very um, rigidly identified as mixed or as multiracial or as biracial and mm-hmm. specifically was like, I am mixed. I am multiracial. I am not white. I am not black. Like I am something else entirely. And that is true, right? Mm-hmm. Like that is not untrue. Um, but, <laughs> and I think in terms of, and I think in terms of my own identity development, my own identity formation, like it was an important part of my identity formation to, um, to resist any attempts to categorize me into any binary, right? Like that was always a part that was, that was always a part of my childhood experience. Right. And I remember our parents being particularly ferocious about our right to self-identify and, you know, going into our classrooms and informing our teachers, like you don't get to tell this child 
how she's supposed to identify racially. That is only for her to decide. It's not even for us to decide because her experience is going to be fundamentally different than ours. And like, it's not mm-hmm. our job. And so I always felt like a, I always felt a sense of ownership around like how I'm going to identify. I think that I, th- and I think that that also left me in a space of, um, unfortunately for a long period of time of having an apolitical relationship to my racial identity. Yeah. And which I think to some extent was like also a survival mechanism for Mm -hmm. being in, um, you know, I went from, um, completing middle school and then high school in a very racially diverse place to then entering an elite college institution that was, 90% 90% white students at the point that I entered school there. 90%. Um, 90%. Yeah. I So I went to college and like I went to, it was the whitest space I'd ever been in. Yeah. Um, and I think that that it was supportive to my survival to um, hold an apolitical stance related to my own race. Mm. Um, and to really just, you know, I just really didn't orient to it at all while I was in college. And even my organizing work was very like neutral and vis-a-vis race. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, I think that was just like all I was surrounded by white people. All the people I was in relationship pretty much with were white people. Like it wasn't, yeah. um, it wasn't super safe for me to do that kind of exploration there. So it, it didn't really happen until, you know, the year after I graduated from college was Hurricane Katrina, mm. and. Um, and and so much else that unfolded in those in those years um, that really pushed me to start to understand my racial identity differently, start to understand my racial identity through an explicitly political lens. And then truly it was like moving to rural Minnesota, um, being in living in a rural white space. Um, being a part of a white family, um, and, um, and being racially profiled repeatedly in that white space, that, that completely shifted my (laughs) relationship to my blackness and really in a way forced me, forced me to start to really like reckon with and deeply understand myself as a black woman. Yes. Um, And, and of course I, you know, I've gone rounds with it. My, and the more deeply that I understand myself as a black woman, the more whole I feel as a person, you know, so it's been very much a healing journey, but it's been a healing journey that's in part been promoted through experiencing trauma related to how other people are interacting with me. That's right. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. Thank you. Thanks for that. Um, how would you how would you describe your that journey? Arc yeah, so far, I, so far, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I feel like um, when I think back, you know, I also feel like we had that experience of our parents being very oriented towards you're something beyond what either of us experienced in life, and um, and they were so oriented to. Uh, taking us away from the racism that they had experienced, taking us away from the racial dynamics that they had grown up in. And so I feel like I had that experience when I was younger, um, when we were first starting out, that it was like, uh, oh yeah, 
I have everything available from both of my parents. Like whatever, whatever they have access to, I have access to those things, but with no consciousness around like, what does that actually mean? And we were in military base environments where a ton of other people were mixed race. There was, you know, people often thought right. that our mom, um, who's white from the deep South, they often thought that she was German because there were so many mixed race, black and German couples. And there were so many mixed race, black right. and Japanese couples because of the legacy of colonialism, which again, didn't know that as a seven-year-old, you know, <laughs> now can look back and be right. like, oh, that's right. Right. why everyone around us was mixed. And being mixed, multiracial, biracial is also not a monolithic experience. Each of those experiences was very different. And as I've gotten older, it's actually been kind of mind blowing to me to meet people who were always told they were basically whichever is the not white. They're like, that's you're that <laughs> from day one. Right. And people who are like, right. you're both or people who are just kind of like you're a slightly darker person who is going to just assimilate into white culture. I mean, all of the above. And for me, there were some key points. So there was a key moment um, in school in which I was racially um, targeted and actually failed a class because of being racially targeted and got sent to a summer school mm. program. And in the summer school mm -hmm. program, everyone was black. And, you know, I had been in mostly multiracial spaces, black, Asian, white spaces. And this was in Atlanta, Georgia. And it was like the first time I was in a space that was all black and mostly people who were class poor, right? And mm -hmm. that was an eye-opening political experience for me. And I look back and I'm like so grateful that that happened early in my life because there was such a clear, um, for me, there was such a, people in the class were like, what are you doing here? <laughs> and the way they pointed <laughs> towards me, it was just like, you don't belong necessarily in this space. And I was also, you know, like, yeah, do, what is the, what's happening? I'm trying to understand what is y'all's experience. And then making connections of like, actually the folks in this classroom deeply align with the experience of our father's family. And because we've grown up moving all the time, we haven't had a ton of exposure to our father's family or our mother's family. <laughs> you know, like we've been in a little right. five person pod moving through military experiences. So that experience made me curious about family in a different way. And I feel like I would take seriously our visits to family after that and just being like, who are y'all? Who are y'all? What's going on here? Right, right. Every no one, none of y'all have any money, but everyone's acting like they do. What what is going? You know, like just trying to understand how race interplayed with class, how race interplayed with education, how race interplayed with how I talked and how people perceived me, mm -hmm. and what it meant to travel. Mm -hmm. And and then for me, I went to also an elite college, but it wasn't um, ninety percent white. I think it was about 60 at the time, um, 60, wow. 70. And, but I landed almost immediately in the black students organization. Like, um, I feel like I was on the campus for maybe like two weeks or something and already got gathered up by black students, right. by black student organizing right. spaces. And actually the same thing happened to me when I first went, like when I landed for high school in Atlanta, Black students gathered me up in that space, too. And they were like, oh, you kind of sing. We'll help you figure out how to do that better. Right. Because 
<laughs> we hadn't been growing up. We'd been were like, like, let's take you from good to great, sister. They're like, we can help you. <laughs> it sounds like no one ever taught you how to do runs. You know, you should know how to do that mm-hmm. or different things like that. Right. So but I feel like I kept having these experiences of black community being like, actually, you belong with us. And I don't know what how this you know, what 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 your life has been like before, but we're going to claim you here. And I had that experience multiple times and in college that happened again where I felt this claiming and I felt this need to really understand black history, mixed race identity, light skinned identity, the distinctions between those two and how for so many people in our communities, if they were light skinned, it meant there was a history of rape. There was a history of harm. There was there was a it was a very different kind of history than what I was coming into, which was our parents are a love story. And my parents love each other and they want us to, you know, they want peace in the world. (laughs) Like, you know, all this different kind of energy. Right. Um, I feel like I think the last thing I'll say on it is that way that I got politicized into understanding the power of blackness, my own and others, and the persecution of blackness in the country has shaped everything that has come after that, that now when I look back, I understand, you know, I appreciate our parents' way of seeing the world. And I also understand the naivety of it and the idealism of it and how young they were, that they were like in their early 20s. They had neither of them been really politicized in that way. Um, You know, they just (laughs) fell in love with each other and were both moving away from oppressive conditions that were different for each of them. And I look back at it and I see how the shaping of white supremacy moved through our family. And I see myself and I see you and I see the way that we now move in our family as a reclaiming of blackness against white supremacy inside of an intimate setting. And I love the work that I've gotten to do in my, in my life. Um, But I think something I've also been aware of all along is not is trying over and over again not to take up space because of my mixed race identity because of proximity to whiteness because of imprinting of whiteness so i've thought many times about am i the right person to step into leadership how quickly can i hand the leadership over to someone who is black (laughs) and without a mixed race aspect to it how quickly can i hand it Mm -hmm. over to someone who comes from a different class background than me and comes from a different educational background than me who might not have had access to these spaces, but who I can create access around these spaces for. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, you know, also figuring out like, how do I make sure that I take my leadership, take, take leadership and uplift the ideas of people who are um, black, indigenous and poor. And I really try to pay attention to that because I think that that's, ultimately what we're all supposed to do is just be attending to how does privilege show up in our lives and how does oppression show up in our lives and how do we in our choices flip the decks right that's so real yeah I feel like um I I do feel like there's a there's a dance that's always happening in me between um you know especially because of how much study I have invested in white supremacy. Um, I can feel so clearly 
the ways that white supremacy and whiteness has shaped my life. Yeah. And then the dance is between the way that I can feel that so clearly and so obviously and the ways that I have to seek the sensation of blackness, Mm. right? Mm. The ways that I have to, the ways that I have to like go deeper to find it. Mm -hmm. And, and it's complicated because the world, you know, I mean, this depends on where I am geographically, but particularly in Minnesota, it's not like, you know, I'm, I'm viewed in most spaces that I move in. I'm seen as a black woman. It's not like I'm not Mm. being seen or experienced as a black woman. Mm. Um, um, I mean, of course, like I have, I have green eyes and I have light skin. And, and, and so I think that like that, that there's, I've, I've gone through lots of different ways that I'm perceived over the years. Uh Um, but I do, you know, and again, especially living in rural Minnesota, I was definitely perceived and treated as a black woman when I lived there. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it's not that I'm not moving through the world as a black woman, but one of the ways that whiteness has shaped me is that it's like dulled my ability to feel it for myself. And so I'm having to, I, especially in a lot of my adult life, I've had to do a lot of like shedding yeah. in order to get deeper, get more deeply into it. Yeah. Um, and, and I, so I think that also puts me in this place where I'm, I'm, I'm always figuring out like, okay, how am I, how am I in relationship with whiteness and, and how am I drawing boundaries with whiteness, right? Yes. <laughs> like, how am I, how yep. am I in relationship with it? How am I understanding it? How am I understanding the way it's shaping me and the way it's shaping my community and it, the way it's shaping the people that I know and love? And also, how am I drawing real boundaries with it? Because I understand that it's fundamentally a site of trauma. Yeah. Mm. You know, something I've been really reflecting on lately is when I was first coming into organizing um, there was such a pattern around caucusing. Like anytime we would get into a space, it'd be like, we need to caucus. Like black people over here, white people need to go over here. Um, Latina, Latin, or at the time we didn't say Latinx, we said Latino people over here. Like, you know, whatever was happening in the group, it was like break out into these groups and have these conversations. And then it felt like there was a big moving away from that being a norm, that we were moving into a different kind of political space and maybe that wasn't what was necessary what was necessary was being in relationship with each other figuring out diversity (laughs) figuring out inclusion figuring out all these things and right now I feel like there's been this move back towards really needing to be in strong caucus conversations because so much is Mm -hmm. shifting at the tectonic plate level in terms of how the whole country is now talking about race and the move is so quickly to put a capitalist, like let's just put a, the skin of racial awareness on top of things and let's put a theme song to racial awareness. And like every ad now looks right. more diverse <laughs> and, and, you know, um, we're all saying the right thing. And like every sporting event is covered in like black lives, obviously matter. Like we're down, right. but just so you know, IBM also believes that black lives we do matter. Think so. <laughs> exactly. Right. So then inside that cauldron, which is like, what is this? Right. Then I think mm-hmm. it becomes even more important to do that caucus work to be like, wait, where are we 
right now? Who are we right now? How are we right now? How are we in relationship with each other? And I think inside of any Black caucus, there does need to be some space for mixed race and light-skinned folks to be in some conversation with each other around how are we accountable right now for the space we're taking up? Right. And how do we not succumb to what I think can happen, which is we start to punish ourselves within the community for the trauma and harm that has come at the community, right? And so we start to be like, well, um, it's your fault that (laughs) this is happening. And it's like, no, no, no. None of us chose um, to be inside the white supremacy cauldron or spectrum. And most of us are not trying to benefit from it. However, that doesn't mean that there's not benefit. That doesn't mean there's not impact. That doesn't mean there's not responsibility. So how do we take on that responsibility and I think right now is an empower like a powerful moment to take a different level of that labor on um that is like it's not a work that I see done very much or done very often or done very skillfully yet and what I what I'm Mm -hmm. really interested in is like maybe that's part of the calling that I'm in maybe that's part of the calling that we're in you know who knows but I'm really, I'm getting more and more curious about it. Like how, how do I hold in one hand my vision of Wakanda and in my other hand, (laughs) the, (laughs) the fact that, you know, um, there's some people who would look at your children and be like, do they belong in Wakanda? Right. Exactly. I want to be able to, like, how do I hold the, all the loves that I have, the love I have of total black liberation and the love I have of our mom? How do I hold those? And that's, that feels like, oh, that's my responsibility as a black mixed race woman to hold. And it's ours as a multiracial family to hold. And then I'm starting to want to be in a more accountable conversation with other people who are mixed race and light skinned about, how do we fit into this in a way that doesn't detract from black liberation vision, but adds to it and deploys whatever privilege we have towards it. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. And I have to say, I feel like this has been, this has been for me, I think, I don't think that I, it was until very recently that I start, that I understood that this question exactly was one of the guiding principles of my work, but it really has been one of the guiding principles of my work over the last decade, because I, I think from pretty early on in my career, I, I, I felt like I understood myself as someone who like through proximity to whiteness, like that, like I had this, like, Oh, I have like a superpower. I can (laughs) deeply understand not just like what whiteness is, but how whiteness is operating at like a cellular level inside yes. of white people. And I'm understanding it because of the way that I'm bridging those spaces in my cellular body. Right. Yes. And so I, I feel in myself this and I have felt for many years this like really strange capacity to both understand what's happening inside of white people yeah. and to name it and to train people in practices that actually subvert the those dynamics that are happening at a cellular level right now I'm in this process as you know um of like trying to figure out how I how I document and then transmit the approach that I take to working with white people around this um because I do feel like there's something there that that a lot more people in our movements could benefit from if there was a way for me to just like take it out of my brain and like transmit it as like a as a tool um but I do feel like 
that to me it feels like this is my contribution I can make to movements right now is that I can I can be working with I can work with whiteness at that cellular mm-hmm. level and say um you feel like we were talking about in our last episode it's like you may feel powerless to do yeah. anything about the way you've been shaped but you're not powerless <laughs> and right. in fact it is like through uncovering the the power and the healing capacity inside their bodies yes. that they can actually help to shift where shift off this trajectory that they've put us on right yeah um mm. and so you know but I, I think that the challenge then for me is again that like it's that dance of being like I can be in this this work takes me into really painful territory mm-hmm. and it's painful territory that isn't all mine right because I also have my own stuff exactly. that's about being mixed and about being black and like I want I, I think the the tension that I've been holding a lot in the last couple of years is like how much more time and energy and life force do I give to this work that I do believe is really important around Mm. whiteness Mm. and then Mm -hmm. how much space am I carving out for me right like my body my healing me top culture well before we go to top culture I just want to say I really appreciate what we covered here I also know it's like tip 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 of the tip of the tip of the tip of the iceberg and Mm -hmm. um, that there's so much more to explore and that not everyone is interested in hearing mixed race people talk about stuff. So I would love to hear back from people, <laughs> you know, like, I, cause that's one of the yeah. things I often feel like I just sit back with it. You know, I try not to take up space, particularly in black space around the com- this conversation. Um, cause I'm like, this just may not be of interest to black folks that much. And, and to people who are not mixed in any way and, or don't, pers- don't understand themselves that way because whatever mixing happened, happened, more generations back or happened in a different way. Um, so I also, I'm interested in hearing from readers, like is the, listeners, is this something that y'all want to hear about? Is this something you want us to explore hmm. further? Are there people you'd like to have us hear from or invite into this conversation? Um, I would just love to ask for that explicit feedback if you're open to giving it yeah. to us. Totally. Top culture. <laughs> um, top culture. Top culture. So... Why I'll not? go first. Yeah, you go first. Um, well, because I guess we only have a couple of minutes, not as much time as we would typically like to have. I, I just have to say, uh, again, late adopter. I just watched Hamilton for the first time ever on Saturday with my children. I fucking loved it. And I I have to say, like, I'm one of those people, when, especially when there's a lot of hype around something. I tend to be very um, skeptical about it. I was especially skeptical. I was super skeptical about Hamilton because of all the reasons why you might imagine I would be skeptical about something that's <laughs> about the founding of the country. And even with all of that, even with all the skepticism, because I went into it just being like, well, we'll see if I could even like this. Um, <laughs> And, you know, musical theater head took over as soon as the lights went down on the stage. And I was just like, I am here for this. I'm here for the costumes. I'm here for the hair. I'm here for the, like, gay king, Very George, gay. with his da-da-da-da-da. I was just like, <laughs> I'm so, I'm here for every last little bit of this show. Um, 
I, I definitely feel the time capsule of it, of course, the feeling of like, oh, yeah, this is like the kind of creative work that really could only have been made during the Obama era, right? Like, you would not, like, uh, a, a musical like this would could not be written now. Right. It, it was it was of a of a moment in time in which I think people everyone was orienting differently to like the political possibility inside of reimagining the past to reimagine the future. Yes. Um, so I I feel that time capsuleness, and even with that, I adored it. And Leslie yes. Odom Jr. made me <sighs> like <laughs> just believe in musical theater all over again. So yes. That was my that was my top culture. Again, I know I'm delayed, but I'm always going to be delayed. So, <laughs> therefore, um, that's what it is. So I am so excited <laughs> that you finally watched Hamilton because I was starting to feel a little like, girl, like I'm not going to lead you astray on this. I know your theater heart. <laughs> and I also, you know, I've had this feeling about a lot of people who were very skeptical of Hamilton. They were like, I just I don't like I don't know about a rap musical. I'm like, nobody did. Nobody thought that was a good idea. And I actually watched an interview um, with the cast where David Deeks was like, yeah, I thought this was a horrible idea until I heard the music, until I got to actually feel and see it. And I think as an act of fantasy, I think that's for me, mm. that's how I have to enjoy it. It's just like, it's yeah. a fantasy to imagine that anyone was really in the founding fathers holding an anti-slavery stance the way they present it. It's a fantasy right. of having right. black and brown <laughs> people in all of these roles. It's a fantasy to turn it into, you know, take it to the level of a musical. It's a fantasy to have everybody so self-aware inside of the impacts that they're having. There's so many levels of it that are fantastical. Right. Right. And it's, to me, I'm able to enjoy it as a fantastical act and then I'm able to enjoy it as a theatrical offer, which is like, it's a conversation starter. It's an emotion generator. <laughs> it, it like does right. all the things right. that I want great theater to do. And I mean, I have listened to it, watched it over and over and over again. And, and I never got to see it in real life. So every right. experience I've had it, has been listening to the soundtrack and for for people to know my one of my nibblings um from another sibling is <laughs> was born and it was the soundtrack of the first weeks of her life and this was uh, a dear black friend of mine that we would just put it on and just be like i can't believe that I'm feeling this way about this fantastical version of George Washington or this fantastical version of Thomas right. Jefferson <laughs> or whatever. You know, I'm just like these songs, these humanizing these people is politically dangerous and is politically fascinating. Right. It's like right. to imagine that. Yes. And it's were, musically thrilling and it's musically thrilling. Right. It's just sort of like, oh, my gosh, like someone who could be a slave owner could also feel this way about founding a nation and have this much heart in, you know, I was like, Oh shit. Like, I don't know if I, I don't know. Should I, I don't, I don't know. It just feels, there's something about it that feels so taboo to me um, to engage with. <laughs> right. It, it does totally. like liking Hamilton totally. feels taboo to me, even though it's, it's something that so many people embraced. So many people went and paid huge money to go see, you know, like, mm -hmm. so I love, I love it. I love it as an art work. And I'm sad because there was this counter play that Ishmael Reed 
wrote and it, they aired it like one time and I wasn't able to make the one time that they aired it this summer. Um, but it's supposed to be like a critical, like a counter where all these other historical figures from that time who are black and brown and enslaved people and other folks come and kind of, I guess, talk to Lin-Manuel about. Oh, yeah. The haunting of Lin-Manuel. The haunting Miranda. of Lin-Manuel. Yes, that's what it is. Right. Yes. So yes. I really want to see that. And I'm hoping that it shows again sometime because I think I'm like, yes, I'm here for all of that. And I'm also here for like, there's a brilliance to this particular thing. That mm-hmm. is, to me, an undeniable brilliance, unless you just hate musical theater. And then it's fine. Just hate it. You can yeah, also, I people mean, seem to really get joy out of their hating of it, too. So, yeah. I'm like, whatever whatever vector of pleasure you're experiencing this on, like, go for it. Um. <laughs> Thanks for listening to our show. We're on Twitter and Instagram <laughs> at End of the World PC. We're also on Facebook at End of the World Show. You can make a sustaining donation to our show if you want to. We're really aware that this is a moment where a lot of things are drawing on your resources. So this is truly a deeply optional thing. If you want to, it feels of use to you, please make a donation on our page, patreon.com slash end of the world show. Another incredibly helpful thing you can do to help our show sustain itself is to write us a review on Apple Podcasts if you are an iPhone person. Thank you. How to Survive the End of the World show is produced and edited by the incomparable Zach Rosen. Music for today's show comes from Tunde Alani Ron and Mother Cyborg. <laughs>